turn back then to the uh, passage that we read and particularly to the beginning of chapter 38 in the prophecy of Isaiah. We can read again at uh, the first verse. In those days Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Or as the authorized version puts it, you shall not live. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and so on. Particularly the words at the end of the first verse, Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. The passage that we have here in Isaiah is one of the few narrative passages that we have among the prophecy. Uh, if you turn to the parallel chapter in 2 Kings chapter 20, you will find that the first uh, eight verses are exactly the same as the passage in the book of Kings. And that has led people to speculate, of course, that it was Isaiah that wrote that particular part of the book of Kings. Others maintain it was Ezra, but that's a debate I'm not going to get into right now. But we need here to, first of all, set the context uh, historically of what is actually happening because the chronology of chapter 38 is not exactly uh, in order, if I can put it that way. And the other thing that you will notice is that the writing from verses 9 onwards, which is in fact a psalm, although it doesn't appear in the book of Psalms, the writing of Hezekiah appears nowhere else except in this prophecy of, or in the book of Isaiah. The other interesting thing to put together with it is the psalm that we are in the process of singing, Psalm 118. The majority of commentators believe that that psalm was written by Hezekiah along with the psalm that we have here and that it reflects basically the situation that Hezekiah was living at this particular time or experiencing in Jerusalem uh, due to the siege of the Assyrians. Now, this is taking place round about 702 BC, 700 years before the birth of Christ. And three or four years prior to this, the Assyrians had come up against the northern kingdom of Israel, besieged the capital Samaria, and taken it and it is from then on that we read again you can go back to the second book of kings or Chron second chronicles and you will find more detail given of that uh, <coughs> it is from then on of course that the ten northern tribes of Israel disappear are taken into cap captivity in Assyria and dispersed and the northern kingdom of Israel is repopulated by people that the Assyrians bring in and effectively disappears from history. 
And so what we find is that Sennacherib then comes to besiege Judah, the kingdom of Judah. And we read that he takes some of the fenced cities around Lachish and so on, and then eventually comes to besiege, or at least sets himself in array before the city of Jerusalem. And you notice that the message that Isaiah brings to Hezekiah in verse 33 of chapter 37, Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, the same shall he return. And then we read in verse 36, that the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. We're not told how that was achieved. Simply that when the people arose early, and it appears that not all the Assyrians were killed, some were left to bear witness, because we read of Sennacherib himself in the next verse, departing and going back. But it seems that the bulk and the flower of the army of the king of Assyria died suddenly. What actually happened to them, no one knows. Even Sennacherib's own record on the tablets and the steles found in Nineveh afterwards do not uh, give any light on what actually happened to these 185,000. But when God intervenes, no explanation is necessary. And scripture leaves it like that. And it is at some point during this, uh, I suppose, the, the correct word is not siege, because he never laid siege to the city, but when he surrounds the city, it is at some point during that period that the events of chapter 38 actually take place. You see that chronologically, the things there must have happened, of course, before the events in verse 36, before the angel of the Lord stri strikes down <coughs> me, the army of Sennacherib. But Hezekiah is going through particularly special circumstances at this time. Now, again, it is worth looking at the figure and the character of Hezekiah for a moment or two before we turn to the actual situation. Uh, Second Kings tells us that Hezekiah had become king at 25 on the death of his father Ahaz. And you will, may remember, of course, the famous Ahaz and Jezebel, uh, the wickedest king that uh, one of the wickedest kings that had governed Judah uh, in the, the, the course of the various kings who governed. And it's a very peculiar thing that among such wickedness, Hezekiah is such a figure of righteousness. If you read back, in, verse, in chapter 18, I'll, I'll read the passage, chapter 18 of Second Kings, then we find a brief character sketch given to us of Hezekiah. Just the first four or five verses. In the third year of Hosea, king of Eli, uh, son of Eli, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. 
He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Sechariah. Now that's a very useful little detail. The daughter of Sechariah. Sechariah was one of the priestly figures. And it would seem that from his mother's side that Hezekiah receives the teaching in the things of God. And you notice the next verse. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places, broke the pillars, cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. Which is, of course, what leads to Sennacherib coming to besiege or with a view to capturing Jerusalem and conquering the kingdom of Judah. It's quite amazing, really, when you consider his father, how Hezekiah grows up as a godly man. And uh, it seems very clear that the influence of Sechariah and his mother had much to do with it. But it's even more interesting when you look at his own son, who is to follow him. As you see in the chapters following in Kings, his son Manasseh was probably the worst king that Judah ever had. <coughs> It tells us that he made blood run in the streets of Jerusalem as he attempted to eliminate the worship of the, of the true God and uh, to undo everything that his father had done. And there's a lesson there for us as well. There is no guarantee that from godly parents, godly children will come. In the same way, that there is no guarantee that from evil parents, evil children will come. When the Lord intervenes in families, he does so for his own purposes. And there is encouragement there for us as parents. But we have this particular situation then. Hezekiah has been king now for a number of years in chapter 38. Uh, we calculate from what we know that approximately he is 39 years old at this time. He died when he was 54. And uh, that is recorded as being in 687 BC. So we can work out the chronology of Hezekiah fairly accurately. Now what the sickness is that afflicts him at this stage, we're not actually told. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. But we read in the very last, second last verse of the chapter, that Isaiah had said to let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. Uh, some speculate that, uh, that Hezekiah had blood poisoning of some kind, and that the poultice of, of figs actually drew the poison 
out of his bloodstream. But it seems very clear to us as we look to this that it was the Lord's intervention that brings Hezekiah back to health. And so we come to the words that I want to consider here. Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not live, or you shall not recover. And I want to really consider three things here. First of all, why did God specially tell Hezekiah that he would die? Set your house in order, for you shall die. Secondly, I want to consider why Hezekiah wept. What was the reason for him weeping? We see at the end of verse 3. Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And thirdly, I want to consider what does it mean to set your house in order? Set your house in order. The first instruction. For you shall die and you shall not recover. None of us need to be told that we will die. That is a fact that every one of us, no matter how young, no matter how old, are well aware of. It's not a fact that we tend to consider very much. It's not a fact that we tend to dwell on. But unless, as Scripture tells us, unless we are alive when our Lord returns again to earth, all of us will face death. Now Hezekiah must have been aware of that. He knew very well that he would die. But perhaps, of course, what he's thinking is that he did not wish to die quite so quickly. You shall die, you shall not recover. How would you react if you were told today by the prophet Isaiah or in any other way to set your house in order for you shall die, you shall not recover. I wonder how many of us would react in the way that Hezekiah does. What does he do? Verse 2 tells us, Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. So often we hear people being asked, what is supposed to be a, a hypothetical question, which people say, what would you do if you only had 24 hours to live? How many things would you tick off on your bucket list if the world was to end tomorrow? How would you spend your last day on earth? And very often the frivolity of some of the answers that people give to these is a matter of grave concern. I wonder, 
And I'm not making a pun deliberately there, grave concern. I wonder how many of us would have the same reaction as Hezekiah. How many of us would turn in prayer to the Lord? And you might be wondering about what does it mean he turned his face to the wall? It gives a kind of picture, doesn't it, of Hezekiah lying on his bed in the bed next to the wall and sort of like a petulant child turning his face away from everyone else and turning to the wall so that no one can see his reaction. Now that's not what it means at all. The wall that Hezekiah turns to face is not the wall of his bedroom, but the wall of the temple. He turns to face towards the presence of God. And he prays to God. You see, you need to come to wonder sometimes why God tests his people. Hezekiah's faith is being tested. In the same way as you and I, throughout our Christian walk, will have our faith tested again and again and again. Because it is through the testing of our faith that we learn, first of all, to trust in God. Not to trust in ourselves, but to trust in God. Not to trust in those round about us, but to put all our trust in God. And that is exactly what Hezekiah does. And it is through the testing of our faith that we grow in grace. And we grow in knowledge. Oh, it's a hard thing for the Lord's people when your faith is being tested. And sometimes you get to the point that you feel that you cannot go on. That your faith is being shattered for whatever reason. And perhaps this is why Hezekiah weeps. I will come to that in a minute. But as he prays to the Lord, when you look at his prayer, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And you notice that the prayer does not say, Restore me to health. The prayer does not say, Let me live longer. The prayer simply says, Remember, O Lord, how I have tried to follow in faithfulness with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. So that brings us to our second question. Why then did he weep? I suppose there's a natural reaction that would exist among all of us if we are told... (coughs) That we have a terminal illness and that we have not much time left on this earth. 
it's even perhaps more poignant when you come to a situation where you're told that you shall die and not recover. But you notice there is no time scale put on it. Set your house in order for you shall die. It doesn't say you shall die today. But nevertheless, that seems to be the implication. And that is almost certainly what Hezekiah understood. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Surely you would think, would you not, that someone who has followed the Lord in faithfulness with a whole heart, even from his young days, has done everything he could to reform Judah, to bring back the worship of the one true God. And if you go back to Kings, again you can read about how a Passover, how Hezekiah held a Passover, not just for Judah, but for those in Israel who wished to come as well. And scripture says that such a Passover hadn't been held for a long, long time. Surely you would think then that Hezekiah, with the assurance of faith that the believer ought to have, would be joyful to depart into the presence of the Lord. I wonder if that's your feeling as you contemplate your own death that will come sometime in the future. Maybe not so distant. Who knows? Are you looking forward joyfully to being with the Lord for all eternity. The majority of us are reaction is, oh yes, I am, but not yet. I've got things to do. I've got lots of things. There's things I want to see, etc. And it seems that the many purposes that we have in our life are more important than being with the Lord for all eternity. You see, of course, you and I have the privilege of the revelation of the full text of Scripture. We have the privilege of knowing that Jesus Christ has come, that he has died for our sins. We have the privilege of the New Testament, something that Hezekiah and Isaiah and the saints of the Old Testament did not have. Or they saw it in the distance through a glass darkly. Even in in Isaiah's prophecies, you see how often Isaiah prophesies the coming and the death of the Messiah and the restoration of the kingdom and the eternal blessings that would flow from that for the Lord's people. But nevertheless, Isaiah is aware, even as you see in the next chapter, in chapter 39, He is aware that Judah is to be taken into captivity in Babylon. He says that to Hezekiah in 39.7. Some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Not Assyria, but the new power that was to come. And of course the 70 years captivity in Babylon 
was still on the distant horizon. God had a purpose there as well. To rid his people of idolatry. If you study the captivity in Babylon. Those who returned with Ezra and Nehemiah. It is then that the synagogues begin in Babylon. And are brought back to Judah. Israel never fell into idolatry again. After the captivity. But Hezekiah didn't have that knowledge and that vision. He had no vision of the cross. He knew, of course, from the prophecies and the promises from his father David and of the Psalms, he knew that Messiah was to come. But he probably had little concept of what that would mean. But nevertheless, notice the assurance of his own faith. Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. Can you and I say that as we look towards our death? Can we say, Lord, remember what I have done? You see, Hezekiah is basing his assurance on his own deeds. His faith is incomplete because he does not have the picture of the Messiah who was to die for sins. But you and I have that picture. That picture is complete. We know that we do not rest on what we do. It is not by works we are saved, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. But it is the gift of God through faith. That nothing you and I can do will bring us to salvation. But Hezekiah didn't have that assurance. His assurance was different. His assurance was that he was faithful to God. So why did he weep? As you face your own death, would you also weep? Perhaps those around you would certainly weep as they see a loved one being taken away into eternity. But what would be your Reaction. Oh, it's so hard to say, isn't it, until you actually come to face the circumstances. And you see, for the believer, there should be no fear in death. <coughs> I have no fear of death. And every believer should be able to say the same. I have a fear of dying. That's a different thing altogether. I have a fear of the process of dying, of the pain that may be involved in it. That's a different thing. But I have no fear of death itself, because death no longer is the victory. The grave no longer has a sting. And I don't think that Hezekiah is weeping for that reason at all. I think there's a totally different reason why he's weeping. 
And the clue to that is given to us in the psalm that he has written. In the words following on from verse 10. In the middle of my days I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Shaul for the rest of my years. I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. And you notice that there it is almost as if he's saying that he will be unable. If he dies, he will be unable to serve the Lord anymore. In the land of the living. He doesn't have perhaps the picture of eternity that you and I have. And you notice that he says that in verse 18. Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you as I do this day. The psalm, the psalm. If it is a psalm, and it's usually classed as a psalm, does not appear anywhere else in Scripture except in the writing of Isaiah. But it gives a most interesting vision into the feelings of Hezekiah. (coughs) And you see in verse 15, as he contemplates this, he says, What shall I say? For he has spoken to me, and he himself has done it. I walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. Why would his soul be bitter? Is it simply because of the fact that he is no longer to serve God in the land of the living? Well, that may certainly have been on his mind. And it's very often on the mind of every Christian, every believer, as they contemplate and meditate about their life. And they see how little they have done for the Lord. No matter how much you do, your feeling is still how little you've done. Compared to what you could have done. How little you know of the Lord's word compared to what you should know. As you study scripture and you learn more and more and you increase in knowledge, you realize that you still have so much to learn. That there are so many things that you don't understand. Oh, there are some things in Scripture that we will never understand in this life. How can you understand God's love for you? What did you do? What did I do to deserve being one of God's children? To be adopted into the family of the Father and become an heir and a joint heir with the Son. What did you do to deserve it? Nothing. The American writer Philip Yancey puts it like this. He says, there is nothing you can do to make God love you more or to make God love you less. And as you can contemplate the wonder of God's election, how he has chosen you since before the foundation of the world 
in Christ Jesus, then you realize just how sinful you are. Just how you fail every day in thought, word, and deed. And yet he still loves you. And he still died for you. But Hezekiah doesn't have that assurance perhaps in the same way as you and I have. So we're still not completely clear as to why Hezekiah wept. Well, I think there's another reason. And it's not a reason we can deduce from this particular chapter here. But we find it from what follows in Hezekiah's story. Isaiah is sent again in verse 5. Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. Up to this point, Hezekiah, at 39 years old, he has no children, no offspring. And therefore he has perceived that the prophecy made so often to Solomon, to David, that thy seed will sit and be established forever. Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4. 1 Kings, chapter 2. That the prophecy that the seed of David would rule forever is about to come to an end. If he dies childless, then the line from which Messiah is to come will be broken. That's why he's weeping, I think. I think the real reason for Hezekiah's tears is that he sees that the prophecy will not be fulfilled. That the seed of David will come to an end. And although perhaps he's not fully aware of it, that the line from which Messiah should come will be terminated here. Now you see in one sense God didn't need Hezekiah. But nevertheless, you notice in the other sense that God's mercy and God's grace is shown. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. And it is during those 15 years that Manasseh, his son, is born. The son who was to become the worst king of Judah. Who was to saw the prophet Isaiah in half. To destroy God's people. Until he is taken away in captivity to Babylon. And then we see in such a beautiful verse. That he was interceded for. And he comes to know God as his saviour. And is brought back to Jerusalem to re-establish the line and to re-establish the worship of the true God. (coughs) There was only one who could intercede for him. The Lord Jesus Christ on the right hand of the Father. I will add 15 years to your life. 
That, I think, is the real reason why Hezekiah was weeping. But the Lord is comforting him. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. You see, the Lord hears his people's prayer. He sees your tears. He doesn't perhaps always answer your prayer as obviously as he does Hezekiah's here. Perhaps there are times when you think that he's not answering your prayer at all. But remember that God's silence is also an answer. You see, it's very easy sometimes when we think of prayer. And again, it's a, it's a big, big subject. There are three answers to prayer. There's sometimes a very clear yes that God gives us. And sometimes a very clear no. But it's when God says, not yet. That you and I struggle with our faith and with our prayers. We know that God has a purpose. And as he had the purpose in testing Hezekiah's faith here. Maybe the same purpose is being Put in place so that you also will be tested to grow in faith and grow in grace. And learn to depend on the Lord for all things rather than depending on yourself. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. How often do we come in prayer and in prayer with tears? Perhaps we should be more often at the throne of grace, seeking for God's mercy, God's blessing, for ourselves and for others. I will add 15 years to your life. And if you read the story of Hezekiah, those 15 years were to be blessed to him in growing not just in faith, but growing in riches, in his power as a king, growing in his family, until he falls into the sin of pride that you can see even briefly mentioned in chapter 39, which would lead to the captivity in Babylon indirectly. And finally, set your house in order. What is meant by setting your house in order? Well, I suppose if you and I were given this information, this instruction, set your house in order for you shall die, you shall not recover. But the first thing we would think of would be all the business matters that we have to deal with. Set your house in order. Have you made a will? Have you arranged everything? for your funeral, for your, uh, those who are left behind, etc.? Have you paid all your bills so that there'll be no family squabbling after you've gone? How sad it is so often to see on the death of someone when the family begins to squabble with each other over houses and crofts and possessions, over the material things. Set your house in order. 
or these are details in our stewardship that we need to look after. But there's a deeper meaning to it. Set your house. Your house is your family. The house of David. The scriptural terms. The word house is used not as a material thing, but to refer to the, to the family. Set your house in order. Was it an instruction for Isaiah and Zechariah perhaps to tutor Manasseh in the things of God when he would come? Was it an instruction again to put the things of the Lord first in the house? Is it an instruction to you you and I that what really needs to be set in order is not the material things but our relationship with God? That's what matters. Because what, what is to come is far longer than the time that you and I will spend in this world. Even if we're granted 70, 80, 90 years, it is but a grain of sand on the beach of eternity. Where will you be in eternity if your house is not in order with God. Hezekiah is very clear on this. What does he say in verse 17? In love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Do you have that assurance this morning? That you can come to the Lord in praise and prayer to say that all your sins, past, present and future, have been cast behind God's back. That they are blotted out. That they are forgiven. That with Paul you can say, as he does in Romans 8, that therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what setting your house in order really means. That's God's instruction to each and every one of us. Set your house in order. And you notice that comes first. Set your house in order. For you shall die. You shall not recover. And you and I would do well to meditate on these things. Not just this morning. But every day let us pray. O oh Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you show us what the priorities ought to be. That we should set our house in order to a full relationship with your son. And we thank you that through the Lord Jesus Christ and the finished work of, the Cal- of Calvary that we are able to do that. That we come not through anything that we ourselves can do but through the work that has been done. And you call us each and every day to come to you and to trust implicitly in the finished work of Calvary. O Lord, we pray for any here this morning who are not yet familiar with you, that you would make yourself known to them, pour out your Spirit and bring times of revival to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
Let us conclude then by singing the verses in Psalm 118 and you can see the relevance of these verses now to Hezekiah's situation. Verses 17 to 23. I shall not die but live and shall the works of God discover. The Lord hath me chastised sore but not to death given over. O set ye open unto me the gates of righteousness. Then will I enter into them and I the Lord will bless. This is the gate of God, by it the just shall enter in. Thee will I praise, for thou me heardst, and hast my safety been. That stone is made head cornerstone, which builders did despise. And you notice even that if it was Hezekiah who wrote this psalm, how he has a vision of the Messiah, even in those verses of the Christ to come. This is the doing of the Lord, and wondrous in our eyes. Let us sing these verses then to God's praise. Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forever. Amen.